John chapter number 11. I love that song where we read there, we sing there, Life shall not end the strain. We're going to be singing the glories of our God forever. And this is just a, a small taste, a little excerpt of what we will be able to enjoy by God's grace and for His glory, to the praise of His name for all eternity. And we'll speak a little bit to that even today as we are in the second part of this message. I started last week in our series through the book of John, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. This is the fifth of the seven I am statements that John writes in his gospel, his themes. One of his themes is the deity of Christ and these seven I am statements. There are other places in the scripture in uh, the book of John even, where Jesus clearly is making reference to his deity, but there are seven metaphorical I am statements that use a metaphor, such as I am the resurrection and the life. We looked in chapter 10 at Jesus being the good shepherd, and I am the door. And then we see here in John 11, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And it is all centered around a funeral. This is a funeral in John 11, for Lazarus, Jesus' friend, whom he loved, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. They were not apostles. They were not disciples in the inner 12 that we refer to as the apostles. But nevertheless, they were good friends of Jesus. They were friends whom he loved. We read there as we studied through John 11 and introduced this passage last week. But this is a, a, a funeral. This is the, the setting, the context. And, and I've been on a couple of mission trips to Africa, to Kenya, East Africa. And I did not go to a funeral, per se, while I was there. But I uh, was close enough to some funerals that were going on in the city, in the area. And the missionaries described to me uh, some of what would go on. And again, I did not witness it firsthand, observe it firsthand. But it was not uncommon for them to even hire professional mourners to come and to wail and to scream and to cry at the funeral. Because there was in that place there in Africa, there was a tribal custom. There was this superstition that if you did not show enough sorrow, if you did not show enough sadness, if you did not show enough just uh, despair over this loved one's death, then they could come back and haunt you. They could come back as ghosts or as spirits, and they could haunt you. And it was gripping. It was uh, very, it caused a lot of doubt, and the missionaries had to deal with it very uh, carefully as uh, they preached the word of God, and they had to deal with that superstition. I do not know from my study how much of that was going on in in, in Bible times in the, the Eastern culture. But I do know that from what I have studied and what I have read, they did hire professional mourners. And so it would not be unusual at a funeral for there to be wailing, for there to be screaming and crying. I don't know about all the superstitions and everything else that were going on, particularly in the Jewish custom and in the, the, the funeral uh, for Lazarus in that day. But this would have been a time of significant mourning. And Jesus comes onto the scene four days from the time that Lazarus died, as we talked a little bit last week. 
We go to John 11, and we go back to verse number 7. And in John 11 and verse number 7, we read there, Then after that, saith he to his disciples, Let us go into Judea again. Remember, Jesus was up north, uh, Bethbara. He was about 20 miles away. And that would have been at least a, a day's journey to walk. Again, probably walking 20 miles in a day. Uh, most of us don't walk 20 miles in a year. <laughs> I mean, that's a long walk, but that would have been uh, his his, 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 his path, his route that day, 20 miles to come to that funeral. He waited two days and then traveled. And we understand the messenger had probably traveled a day. So now we are four days removed. But here's the disciples questioning Jesus and whether he should go to Judea again. And there in verse number eight, his disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and thou goest thither again. Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. We talked last week about how Jesus was committed to doing the Father's will. He was committed to obeying God, even though it was hard, even though it meant going back into the persecution. He knew these people needed the message of the resurrection and the life. He knew that these disciples needed to grow. They needed to take a step in their faith. He knew the importance of this miracle that he was about to do. Yet he had delayed because his love is a perfecting love. His love is one that seeks out the very best for us. And sometimes his love challenges us. And our faith is challenged and our faith is tested and our faith is tried. Not because God doesn't love us, but because he loves us. And he wants our faith to grow and he wants us to trust him just as we as parents and grandparents sometimes have to challenge our children and we have to put them in hard places and we have to even put them in a place where sometimes they will have resistance. And we do so because we know it's good for them. We know it's right for them. We know it's important. Not that we throw them to the wolves to get devoured and spit out and mistreated. But many times we have to put our children in a place where, yeah, there's disagreement. Yeah, there is some difficulty. Yeah, there is some outside influence, even to some degree in the work world. As our children go out into the working world, they have to deal with a sin-cursed culture, don't they? They have to deal with some resistance. And sometimes it results in a conversation about Christ. And again, that balance of being in the world, but not of the world. And how often we have to insulate and not isolate, especially as our kids get older. And God's love is perfect toward us. And it is a perfecting love. And in commitment to doing God's will, Jesus sets the greatest example of commitment to God's will. And he says, if you walk in the day, I am walking in the day. I am walking in the light of God's word. I am fulfilling the Father's will. I am doing what God has sent me to do. I am walking in the light. And those who stumble walk in the night. They walk in darkness. That speaks to us getting outside of the will of God. That speaks to us getting outside of the word of God. That speaks to us getting outside of the control and the leading of the Holy Spirit. That speaks to the fact that there are some who are stumbling in the night because they're unsaved. They're groping about in darkness. They have no light. They don't have the light of life, Jesus Christ. But for us as believers, we can stumble in the darkness of listening to the voice of this world and 
the lies of this world and getting away from the word of God and getting outside of the will of God. We need to walk in the light. We need to walk in the light of Jesus Christ and his word and, and under the control, the filling of the Holy Spirit. Jesus was committed to doing God's will. He was not afraid because he was doing what God had called him to do. And there is no reason, again, as I spoke of last week, there's no reason for us to fear when we are in the center of God's will. The worst that man can do to us is send us to heaven to be with our heavenly father forever. The one who stumbles is not led by the light of God, is not led by God's word, is not led by the Holy Spirit. But then we come down in John 11 and we come down to verse number 11, these things said he, and after that he saith unto them, our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if ye sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. Nevertheless, let us go unto him. Then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. We see this morning, first of all, the confusion of the disciples, the confusion of the disciples. Jesus said Lazarus was sleeping. Now, I'm a heavy sleeper. I'm a person that I can sleep through thunderstorms. I can sleep through noises of all kinds. Occasionally, there will be a storm that will wake me up. Occasionally, uh, I'll wake up for this, that, or the other. Maybe something's on my mind and I can't get back to sleep or something. But I remember when the kids were, were born, each one of them, I would go to sleep and Kelly would hear the baby crying and she would have to elbow me. Uh, if, it were, if it was my turn, we took turns, and I was the, the, the type that could go right back to sleep. Uh, Kelly, if she got up during the night with one of the kids, it would be an hour or more for her if, if she would even get to sleep at all. Me, I would get up, I'd feed the baby with the bottle, you know, rocking the rocking chair for a little while, and then I would put the baby back into the crib, I'd go back to bed, and I'd be out. I'd be right back to sleep. And it wasn't like that for, for her. And so I often had, had, had late night bottle duty, which, which was fine. It, it, was, it was good for me, and I'm, I'm thankful for those precious moments with, with my children. But I, I can sleep heavy, and you know people like that. Maybe you're like that, and it seems like they're dead when they sleep. I have a couple of kids that uh, they sleep very, very, very soundly, and uh, it's hard to get them up and get, get them going. But was Jesus referring to sleep in the sense of a heavy sleep at night where it's hard for us to wake up. That's not what he's referring to. It's a euphemism. The, 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 the term sleep or the, 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 the term sleep or the, the, the word sleep is sometimes used in the Bible to refer to the temporary state of physical death, the temporariness of physical death. First Thessalonians 4, First Thessalonians 4 in verse Number 14, we see this in verse 14 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Jesus knew that he would soon raise Lazarus from the dead. Jesus obviously knew that for believers, those who know Christ as their personal Savior, death is just a temporary state 
And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But our bodies are temporarily in the earth until the rapture, until the resurrection day, when our bodies and our souls are once again reunited at the resurrection. The word sleep speaks to that temporary state of physical death. Lazarus was soon going to be raised from the dead. Jesus knew that. But the disciples thought that Jesus was referring to actual sleep. So they figured there was no reason to bother him because he was going to be okay. Leave Lazarus there. He's dead. He's just sleep. Or excuse me, he's just sleeping. Uh, if he's just asleep, then then why all this commotion? Why all this uh, trouble going down to Judea? Somebody will wake him up. He'll wake up eventually. But because the disciples were not completely getting it, as we sometimes are, God has to, in a sense, hit us over the head with a two by four. Because we're stubborn, we're self-willed, we want to do it our way. And no matter how much counsel we get, no matter how much someone who is led of the Lord to give us counsel and instruction to help us, sometimes we're still too stubborn to hear. We're still too stubborn to listen. I've been there. I've done that. I've been that stubborn kid. I've even been that guy in the ministry, young in the ministry, and Pastor Defoe had to come to me and speak to me. Pastor Arrowwood had to come to me and speak to me. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that I had men in my life. I'm thankful that I've even had kids in my life who've had to help me. Even when I was 99.9% right, they had 0.1% right about me. And I had to correct it. I had to get it fixed. I've had to get down on my knees to my children at the age of three or four. And it's even sometimes harder when they're teenagers and apologize. I have a, a wife who loves me, and praise God she does, because she's had to correct me a few times, and she's gentle about it. She's not a nag, and she'll have to remind me sometimes that, you know, my, 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 my thinking is stinking, and I'm being a little stubborn here, and I need to just get over it. I need to think about it a little differently. The disciples are that way, and we can be that way. We can be so stuck in our selfish ways. No one's going to tell me what to do. Don't you know who I am? Did the disciples, the disciples were almost at that point where, well, we're the 12 apostles. We're the, we're the chosen of Jesus. Why would you go down there, Jesus, and deal with those persecutors? If Lazarus is just sleeping, what's the point? Thomas even spoke up, and Thomas gets a little bit of a bad rap. He's the doubting Thomas, right? And Thomas speaks up, and he, 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 he says there, as we uh, read in verse 16, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, Thomas could be fatalistic here. And I know sometimes in some of the commentators, they look at this as Thomas being the doubting Thomas. Oh, let's just all go so we can all just get slaughtered as martyrs. Let's all just die. It's almost like a fatalistic attitude. But I also can't help but wonder if Thomas got the message. I almost wonder if Thomas didn't figure out, you know what, guys? Jesus knows what he's doing. He's being led of the Father's will. He has something big for us if we'll just listen, if we'll just obey, if we'll just follow, if we'll just get ourselves out of the way and listen to what God is doing. Jesus has something in mind here. He has a plan. And I can't help but think in the back of the disciples' mind, as we sometimes are, God, what is it you have for us? 
Is, another, is it another storm on the Sea of Galilee? God, is it, is it another testing of our faith? Is it another trial? And sometimes that's why we're hesitant, right? We're hesitant to step out for God. We're hesitant to take that leap of faith in a sense. We're hesitant to serve. We're hesitant to go forward for the Lord because God, it, it, it might bring some suffering. It might bring some trial. It might bring some difficulty in my life. And we are so soft sometimes as Christians. We're so weak. Now, there are pro-abortionists. There are liberal, wicked, evil, false teachers all around in our culture and around the world. And they are adamant and determined in their evil, in their sin, in their ungodliness, in their unrighteousness, to promote their filth, to promote their false teaching, to go out and to give of themselves to all kinds of wickedness. And sadly, in some cases, they put us to shame in their drive, in their devotion, in their commitment to their wickedness and to their evil. When we have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who came and died on the cross for our sins, who didn't have to do that, and we can barely lift a finger for him. And the most we can do is gripe and complain about everybody else isn't doing what they should be doing. If they would just all get up and get busy. And sadly, it's right here. It's me. It's I. That's the problem. And I can't help but wonder if Thomas spoke up out of faith. Hey, guys, Jesus is telling us we need to go. We need to go with him back into Judea. We know this might mean persecution. I can't help but think of Paul in Acts chapter 20 as he goes back to Jerusalem, committed to doing God's will to go back to Jerusalem to preach the gospel, knowing even as the elders came out and pleaded with Paul not to go, Paul was fully committed to doing God's will. And I can't help but think that Thomas here is saying, guys, we need to do this. We need to follow Jesus, even if it means that we die with him. We need to be willing to even suffer martyrdom for the cause of Christ. I want to give Thomas the benefit of the doubt. I want him to be, in a sense, the leader here who spoke up. I can't be dogmatic about it, but I would like to thank that Thomas here was saying, guys, we need to obey Jesus. We need to go with him. We need to follow him. We need to support him. We need to go even if it means our death. Jesus called us. He said, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And Thomas spoke up, and I believe, and again, in my opinion, he's being the leader here, saying, let's go and serve with Jesus even if it means our life. So we see the confusion of the disciples. Secondly, we see the confession of Martha. We see the confession of Martha. We come down to verse 17. Then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh unto Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. That's about two, two miles. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother, then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. 
Then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died, but I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise again. And Martha said unto him, verse 24, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Martha ran out to see Jesus. She heard that he was coming. I, I love Martha. I love Mary as well. I love her devotion. But I find myself sometimes a little bit like Martha. Just wanting to get, just wanting to get busy. Just wanting to get out there and see what's going on. Just want to run out there and figure out what, what, what's all, you know, what can I do? How can I help? Sometimes I, I feel like a, a, a Martha and it, it, it can get me in trouble because sometimes I don't know when to say no. And, and sometimes I get too much going on, especially at our, our previous ministry. I would, Pastor Arrowwood would sometimes have to, to tell me to, to, to say no or he'd have to uh, help me to take something off my, my plate because sometimes I just want to get involved in everything. And, and there was a time in my life where I thought, well, if I'm busy for the Lord, then that means I'm right with God. And the busier I am, the more right with God I am. And God had to humble me and teach me some important lessons about how just running around being busy all the time doesn't mean that I'm actually doing what's right and what's profitable. And then getting so busy and getting so active and doing and doing and doing and doing that I forget the devotion. That from the devotion from my walk with the Lord, from my devotion to him and with him comes the busyness, comes the duty, comes the activity. And we know that Mary and Martha had to work that out, right? Martha's complaining to Jesus at one point, saying, Mary's in there. She's being lazy. I'm so busy. And Jesus had to help Martha. Here Martha comes out and she meets Jesus along the way. And what an incredible confession. You know, Martha's faith was, was wavering a little bit, but it stayed strong. Jesus had come to comfort them. Jesus had come with a purpose to raise Lazarus. They didn't know that yet. But she immediately questioned Jesus, thinking that if he had been there, Lazarus, her brother, would not have died. Was it, was it wrong necessarily for her to think that? He had healed others. He had healed the sick. He had healed the blind man who had been blind since birth. She had seen Jesus do incredible miracles, healings. It wasn't necessarily wrong for her to think, Jesus, if you had been here, you could have healed him. He, he never would have died. Her faith wavered a little bit. But she also understood what? That God was in control. John 11, again, Verse 21, then said Martha unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. It's like the, the man who said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I don't know how many times you have been there, but I have been there many, many a time. Lord, I believe. But God, I don't know what you're doing here. I don't fully understand it, but I know. I know whom I have believed. And Lord, I am going to trust you. I can't make sense of it right now. It doesn't completely compute in my mind. But Lord, I know I can trust you. 
I believe you are faithful. And Martha confessed, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. She knew where to go. She knew where her faith must remain. She had her focus in the right place. It needed a little correcting. It needed a little recalculating. Her faith wavered a little, but Christ helped her with her faith. He was compassionate and he was caring. He took some time with her. He had some patience. He had some long suffering with her. The word that she used to speak of asking Jesus here in this passage actually speaks of a inferior asking a request, an inferior asking a request of a superior. But later when Jesus speaks of calling upon God and asking of God and whatsoever God will give him is of the Father. Whenever Jesus in the New Testament asks a request of his Father, it's always a term that is of an equal asking another equal, speaking to the deity of Christ as equality with God. Martha comes and she uses the word in the original language of asking, of begging, of that of an inferior to a superior, speaking again to her humility, speaking again to her trust, to her faith. And then we see down further, as Jesus took some time with her, as he was patient with her, as he was long-suffering, he said, I know, or he said, thy brother shall rise again. And then Martha in verse 24, as he leads her in her faith and in her trust, In growing her faith and her trust in him, I know, Martha says, that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. What did Martha lay hold of? A promise of God. She she laid hold of a truth. How many times in times of question, in times of uncertainty, in times of doubts and confusion, do we just have to go back to the word of God and lay claim to his promises, lay claim to his truth, lay claim to his commands, lay claim once again and remind us of our need to trust him, to depend upon him, to believe. Now Martha still had to obey. Martha still had to follow through. She still had to complete the task that he had given her to do here at this funeral. But the point is that Martha is being grown in her faith. There's a discipleship that's taking place here. And sometimes we as strong, doctrinally sound, separated fundamentalists, sometimes we struggle at the discipleship part. We're strong in our doctrine. We're right in our doctrine. We're separated. We've been obedient in all these areas. But sometimes we lack the compassion and the long suffering that Jesus had in helping people grow in their faith. I have not been in the ministry that many years, just under 25 years. But I know my burden is to see our church grow, each and every one of our church people to grow all the way down to our young people. And again, that's, that sometimes means we have to meet people where they're at. And again, I am so burdened because as we reach people for Christ and as people come to our church they're, again, they're not always going to look and smell and act exactly the way we think they should. Some of them are going to come as baby Christians, but we aren't supposed to leave them there. We're supposed to help them. We wouldn't leave an infant. We wouldn't leave a toddler. 
And sometimes that means we have to help them. We have to go across the aisle. We have to reach outside of ourselves. We have to go to somebody that we don't even like and be willing to start a conversation with them and be willing to learn about their life and find out where they're at. And maybe they can help us and we can help them. And discipleship works both ways. But many times I find spiritually mature individuals who they push people away. Well, I'm up here and you're down there and I don't have time for you. And that's been one of the weaknesses in our churches is we haven't reached out and discipled the little baby Christians. And I have had the privilege by the grace of God of growing up in a Christian home and going to good Bible preaching churches. I've gone to Bible college and gone to seminary, but I don't have it all. I'm not all that. And God's had to teach me a lot of humility along the way. I've had some hard knocks. And I've had to get on my knees and confess my sins. And I still got a long ways to go as a pastor. But I love the example of Jesus here. How he looked at Martha. He didn't say, Martha, you should know by now. Martha, where's your faith? Don't you know who I am and what I can do here? Did he rebuke her? Did he scold her? Did he push her away? Did he say, Martha, you go back to Mary, and why don't you learn from Mary? She should have it all together. She's the devoted one. No, he didn't do that. He had patience. He had compassion. He was willing to reach out to her, and he just gently reminded her of the word of God and gave her the truth. And sometimes that's all it takes is a conversation, uh, an excerpt from the word of God, a passage, a prayer with someone, and just taking time to get to know them and reaching out and finding out about their need. You know that there's something going on in life. They've been grumpy. They've had an upset day, an upset look on their face. And you notice maybe they haven't been in church and they've been here and there and different things have been going on. You've heard little things and maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's that you see them in church and you leave your group of friends and you go and you reach out to them and you say, hey, I've been praying for it. I've been thinking of you. Sometimes it's a card. Sometimes it's an email. It has been such a blessing to hear so many of you checking on each other. And even where someone has been missing a few weeks, I've heard where you've, you've reached out to them and you said, hey, where, where you been? That is a blessing to my heart. And a lot of times discipleship is just those little conversations along the way. And as parents and grandparents, we have a big job of discipleship with our kids, with our grandkids. And those things come often, they come regularly, and we have to take on that responsibility. And we have to point them to Christ and keep pointing them to the truth and keep focusing their eyes upon the Lord. And Jesus took Martha as she's struggling, and he points her back to the truth, and then he comes down. And we see Martha taking a great step in her faith. She saith unto him, verse 27, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which should come, which should come into the world. This is a Matthew 16 moment where Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. I want to say amen with Martha. I want to say praise God. Martha got it. Martha grew. Martha took a big step. She graduated, in a sense, from kindergarten level in her faith to high school level or graduate school level or college level or seminary level, whatever level. She grew. And Jesus helped her along the way. And she, con she confessed that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, which should come into the world. So we've seen the confusion of the disciples, the confession of Mary. And then we see, thirdly, the declaration of Christ. 
as the resurrection and the life. The declaration of Christ as the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life, Jesus said. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? Christ is the author and the cause of the resurrection. The resurrection is because of Christ. No man, I don't care what this cryo, whatever technology it is, I forget the name of it, that they've got the baseball player, Ted Williams, frozen somewhere in some freezer. And I don't know how many other people frozen hoping that somehow, some way, man will develop the technology to put life into that frozen corpse and bring it back to life again. Man isn't going to be able to do that. Man can't do that. Death and life belong to God, belong to Christ. The resurrection is because of him. He has the power to lay down his life, power to take it up again, John 10 and verse 18. He is eternal life. He is the author and the cause of eternal life. Outside of Christ is death, spiritual death, a physical death that then leads to a spiritual death and an eternal death. But in Christ is life. In him is life eternal. So to believe in Christ is to believe in who he is and all that he claimed to be and in all the works that he performed. And Jesus has been teaching that and has been preaching that. There are all these passages that we've been looking at. So a person cannot just pick and choose what to believe about Christ and think that he's a true believer. I think it was Thomas Jefferson who cut up the New Testament, took out everything that he didn't believe about the New Testament. And I understand his Bible is on display somewhere where it's cut up. The Jesus Seminar started decades ago and these group of ignorant, intelligent scholars, I use the word ignorant on purpose, because they think that because they are scholars, and because they have all these letters after their name, and because they have academic credentials, they can take the Bible and they can decide what Jesus actually said and did, and what he didn't, according to their idea, say and do. And the Jesus Seminar has been around for years. It's blasphemy. Superstars that get up, even blasphemy that's been on the internet this past week, where homosexual priests and LGBT church members get up and reinterpret the Word of God and say blasphemous things about our Savior. They get to define who Jesus is. Time Magazine gets to define who Jesus is? No. The Word of God declares who Jesus is. Jesus declared himself. God said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. A person just can't pick and choose what to believe about Christ and what not to believe, what to believe, what not to believe, and think that they can still be a genuine believer. No, we surrender to him, and he is our life. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me, Paul wrote in Galatians 2, in verse 20. One who believes in Christ receives eternal life. 
and will experience the resurrection unto life. When Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life, he is saying that there is a resurrection day coming. And he is the first fruits of that resurrection. And the resurrection that he is getting ready to do by raising Lazarus is simply an illustration, an example, and a testimony of what Christ will do for all true believers. And Lazarus was raised to a physical body to die once again, proving, yes, that Jesus Christ has the power over death and life, and proving that he will resurrect us one day. But when we are resurrected, according to 1 Thessalonians 4, according to 1 Corinthians 15, we will be resurrected unto a spiritual body. Our body, our physical body, will be reunited with our soul and our spirit to ever be with the Lord. And we'll talk about that some more when we get to John 14. But Jesus here performs an incredible miracle. And it speaks to the resurrection that we will have as believers. 1 Thessalonians 4, I was there earlier. And I want to go back to this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4. We know it well. But in verse 13, but I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. How can Paul write that in 1 Thessalonians? If it wasn't true what Jesus said in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Paul was willing to go to a martyr's death, believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we have that hope this morning. And if any of you today, if any of us here in this room do not know Christ as your personal Savior, today can be your resurrection day. God calls for each and every one of us to confess our sins and place our faith and trust in Christ and his finished work on the cross and his bodily resurrection. And he will save you. And there's that promise of that resurrection. And we long for that day. And by the looks of us, we need that resurrection body. I know I do. We look forward to that day. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Jesus declared he is the resurrection and the life. Fourthly, today, as we come to the close of our, our message this morning, we've not only seen the confusion of the disciples, the confession of Martha, and the declaration of Jesus, but we also see, fourthly, the compassion of Jesus. Verse 33, we read, When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping which came with her, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. We go down to verses 35 and 36. The shortest verse in the Bible is verse 35 of John 11. Jesus wept. We see the humanity of Jesus as well as his deity in this passage. 
He was touched with the feelings of our infirmities, Hebrews 4 and verse 15 says. This phrase, groaned and was troubled, it means that he was greatly agitated from grief. There was an internal sorrow that physically affected him. He cared that much. He cared that much about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. He cared that much about all those sorrowing, and he cared that much about all those who needed him as their Savior that day. And I don't know about you, but there's been some times of sorrow in my life where I have been physically affected by that sorrow, where I have wept. And to think that my Savior knows that, experienced that, empathizes with that, sympathizes with that, that is a comfort that brings a peace to my soul. As my dad went into glory and I wept, there was a peace and there was an assurance. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter number 2, and these words have brought comfort to my heart, and I've shared them with many who have gone through the sorrow of death of a loved one. 2 Corinthians in chapter number 1. 2 Corinthians chapter number 1. In verse 2, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. We experienced that once again back in July when Kelly's mom went to be with the Lord. And the comfort that we found in Christ and the comforts that we found with other believers and the comfort and the consolation that abounded in Christ, we experienced that. As many of you have experienced that. And we thank the Lord for that, and it's because he is the resurrection and the life, and we see that high priest who is touched with the feelings of our infirmities right here in John 11. We see his compassion. And then finally, fifthly, we see the power of Jesus. We won't have time to go back and read all the paragraph that we read for our scripture reading. But Jesus comes to the grave. He comes to the tomb. The stone lay upon it. He had been dead four days even Martha, who, again, she's taken great steps of faith. She's taken great leaps, even in this passage, but she's still having a little bit of trouble wondering with her human eyes what's going to happen, what Lazarus is going to look like, and that stone gets rolled away. Four days without all the embalming that we have in our modern technology and medical technology today. She comes right out and says, he's, he's going to stink, he stinketh. And Jesus, in his power, in his resurrection power, he says in verse 40, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God. God had a purpose. God had a plan in Lazarus' death. In this funeral, in this sorrowful occasion, God had a purpose. He had a plan. He was going to overrule death. He was going to overrule the sorrow. He was going to bring comfort and joy in the midst of pain and suffering. 
Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me, and I knew that thou, hast, that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And then verse 43, Lazarus, come forth. Some have said if Jesus had just said, come forth, then all of the dead would have come forth. Some have said that he had to say Lazarus, but we know specifically it was Lazarus that was in that tomb. Lazarus, come forth. And just like that. Lazarus walked out of the tomb. Now, I don't want to get too carried away here. We're almost out of time. But I do think it's interesting as a little side note that we don't get a book on the top 10 New York Times bestselling list written by Lazarus of all that he experienced for four days while he was in the grave. Just a little side note there. God, for whatever reason, kept Lazarus at least somewhat silent about what he experienced for for those four days. Because God wants our faith to be in Christ. He wants our faith to be in him. He wants us to trust him and his resurrection power in our lives. Not on a dead man who rose from the grave who can tell us about whatever he experienced for those four days. Just like that rich man said to Jesus, or excuse me, to, to Abraham, send my brothers. And he said they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. Let them read of them and believe. We have the word of God this morning declaring Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life. We have this event. We have this miracle. This is a real event with eternal implications and applications, with real meaning, eternal meaning. It's up to us. Are we going to believe and live by his resurrection power? Or are we going to continue in our own way and doing our own thing and miss out and what God wants to do in our lives and in our church for his honor and for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for this incredible event, this miracle that speaks to your deity and your humanity and your resurrection power. Lord, if there's someone here who has not experienced that resurrection power in their life through salvation, Lord, may they turn to you today and receive you as their Savior. For us as believers, Lord, help us to live in this resurrection power. Help us to live by faith and to obey and to honor you and to love you and to serve you. We pray that you do your work in our hearts even as we close this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll ask if you'll stand and turn in your hymnals. Our closing hymn will be 264. We'll sing stanza number four of I Will Sing of My Redeemer. We sang a few stanzas of this song a little bit earlier. Again, if God is speaking to you. You can do business with the Lord even as we sing. If we can help you in any way after the service, we'd be happy to do so. We'd be happy to take some time and share with you from the Word of God and how we can help you and whether you need to be saved or whatever it might be.